This week's Motley Fool Money is brought to you by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide entitled, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com. Thanks also to Sprout Social. Sprout Social offers businesses an intuitive platform to help build meaningful relationships at scale on social. To learn how your brand can create real connection, visit SproutSocial.com slash Fool today. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week from 1623 Capital, Jeff Fisher and Motley Fool Senior Analyst Andy Cross and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, Chris. How you doing? We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. Upwork CEO Stefan Kostriel is our guest. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big macro. The S&P 500 index hit a new all-time high in the wake of this week's Federal Reserve meeting. The Fed indicated a willingness to cut interest rates in the coming months. Andy Cross, I'll start with you. It doesn't seem like our strong U.S. economy necessarily needs interest rates to go lower, but I am not going to complain about my index fund going higher. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, compared to where we were in December, it seems like, you know, years ago. Uh, so, it's been a nice run this year. It's been a little bit rocky earlier on, but um, clearly a lot of excitement. You know, I think a lot the the Fed talk over the past few months has driven a lot of the big macro um, money that's flown into the U.S. markets, that's driven a lot of the stock prices, because we're one of the few large growing economies. Um, there's a lot of money that still is going into our stocks because that's where the growth is. A lot of excitement with some of the initiatives from the IPO market, but just from the S&P 500, big companies continuing to put up fairly good numbers on the growth side. Not great, but fairly good. And when you're looking for some growth, if you have a lot of money to spend, you're going to look in the U.S. Yeah, for sure, Wall Street loves lower interest rates. That's just a given. But let's not forget why the Fed may feel the need to do this in terms of lower lowering interest rates, easing monetary policy. It's because they see slowing growth, both domestically and internationally, which can be problematic. I mean, that can lead to a recession, obviously, which is something no one wants to see. So they're trying to be proactive about it. Inflation remains tame, so I think they feel that they they can get this done if they need to. Um, and in fact, traders are pricing in a hundred percent chance of a cut um, this coming a hundred percent next month. A hundred percent is is, is, is anything a hundred percent? I mean, in this case, it is. So it, it looks it looks like it's going to happen, barring any un unforeseen circumstances over the next few weeks. But we we really do want to keep an eye on GDP um, because it, somebody's seeing some slowing growth there for sure. Well, I have to ask this question, even though I think we all know the answer, but is the Fed here, is the ECB, are we all now sort of addicted to stimulus or to propping stocks up whenever they drop? Or We're seeing the markets more manipulated, is the word I'll use, than any time in, in my lifetime. Yeah, I think the answer is yes, and it's it's part political, the political climate, um, and I'm sure the Fed feels pressure there, although they're not supposed to, and they sh let's hope they remain independent. 
Um, but f- for sure, we like our stimulus. You know, I don't know if we ever go back to the monetary easing where we kind of build up the balance sheet um, again. I'm not even sure that really served its purpose. It seems like interest rates are, are a much more, uh, a much better way um, to stimulate the economy. Um, but for sure, we focus awfully a lot of our time on the on the stock market itself rather than underlying economics. Well, right? you're, you're seeing it also in multiples, Jeff. Like the multiples, the price of sales for the S and P 500 is at Certainly, a f- probably a 15-year high, and mm-hmm. more than 2.2 now. And you've seen a lot of stocks. I mean, the IPO market is as hot as it's been really since yeah. we practically joined the Motley Fool back in the 1990- late 1990s. Good so, times. a lot of excitement <laughs> around people spending money, pretty much on U.S.-based stocks. Although the IPO market globally is pretty hot, but really on U.S.-based stocks because. That is really, you know, the creme de la creme, really, of investing right now. Definitely, the economy is doing pretty well here. I just, if investors are always hoping that the government will step in and prop things up, it's interesting to see how that'll play out long term. Let's get to some earnings. Shares of Oracle up more than five percent this week. Fourth quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. And Jeff, Oracle is closing in on a market cap of two hundred billion dollars. Yes, Chris, and it's the stock that everyone thinks went nowhere in recent years, and in some ways it didn't, but it actually doubled in the past seven years. It more than doubled the past seven years, so it's gone up more than the S&P does on average over its lifetime. And this quarter, finally, they saw real good growth in database license sales, so everyone's happy to see that. Overall revenue growth is still modest at 3% year-over-year, but they expect that to tick higher next year, in this new year, and they do expect earnings per share to grow at least 10% year-over-year. Now, that said, Chris, they bought back $36 billion in stock in the past 12 months. At an average $49 per share, the stock is more than 10% higher now. But still, that's a lot of money to spend on your own stock. And does that speak to like how strongly they feel about their business and the software industry as a whole? Or does that speak to, we don't know where else to put this money? Yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> Option B. <laughs> so, the shares are still inexpensive at 14.4 times estimated earnings for next year. But it's also still a slow revenue growth story. First quarter profits and revenue for CarMax came in higher than Wall Street was expecting, and shares of CarMax up on Friday. And Ron, hitting a new all-time high. Boy, is this company getting it done. Up 37% the stock this year. Metrics continue to be really positive. Net sales up 12%, and comp sales up 9.5%. They're strong on the unit uh, used unit sales, up 13%, also strong on wholesale. Um, the auto finance unit, kind of lackluster, up slightly. Nothing to report, really, there. But that all translated into a profit growth of 12%. Um, so, really doing well. They're now focused on this omni-channel experience, they're calling it, um, rolling that out to majority of customers by 2020, so you can um, use their services at home, in-store, a combination of both. That's kind of their next move. Uh, speaking of repurchases, they repurchased 3 million shares during the quarter, average price of about $68. That's shares nothing. are at 86 right now, <laughs> though, so that seems like a nice use of capital, <laughs> as long as things um, Remain solid. So really nice, nice job by by the folks over. Ron, at they, they sell cars, right? <laughs> they, they they sell cars. <laughs> they buy and sell cars. Okay. Yes. It's funny that they're doing so well, and yet the automakers are are not. 
But well, I mean, they're mostly focused on used, used obviously. Yeah. yeah, you know, but yeah. it's interesting. Like you see them trading only at 16 times earnings um, for, for some of the, uh, the the typical like auto you know nations and the Penske's of the world trading you know like eight or ten times. So you're, you're paying a premium for the CarMax experience versus your typical used car dealers. I actually bought a car from CarMax a year ago, and I have to say it was the best experience I've had buying a car, and it still can be improved. There's still there's still a market opportunity for someone out there the to Omni make this channel, baby. even better, even more streamlined, and take less time. Well, speaking of that, Chris is actually a relatively new IPO called Carvana uh, CVNA on the market that is trying to disrupt the used car buying you experience. See those big what they call them, what, vending machines yeah. filled with cars along the <laughs> exactly. side of the road. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Another week, another hot public offering. This time it was Slack. Shares of Slack made their public debut on Thursday. Technically not an IPO, Andy, but shares up nearly 50%. Yeah, direct listing, so they didn't actually issue new stock into the market. So it was like a matching of buyers and sellers. But Slack has really become the proverbial like office cubicle and water cooler all wrapped together into a slick cloud-based you know, um, architecture where people and companies like The Motley Fool use it as their primary collaborative um, uh, tool to communicate and to work better together. Uh, so they slack uh, pretty much um, is defining how people and how offices and workplaces communicate. One billion messages sent per week. Average usage is 90 minutes per day. I think wow. mine's probably a little bit higher than that. Hmm. Um, 600,000 total customers, Chris, but 100,000 of those are paying. So they have a freemium, a free-to-pay kind of model. Um, 645 customers contribute 43% of revenues. Those are ones that generate more than $100,000 in annual subscriptions. So a lot of excitement around Slack. Obviously, a lot of excitement, as I mentioned earlier, around the um, IPO market in general. As a direct listing, the last one and the only one that I know, Spotify yeah. do this. This was more successful than Spotify. So, like you said, Chris, the stock listed at about 26 and now it's about 38. So, a very successful debut. Still not profitable, interestingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, 34 times revenue at IPO or direct listing. I don't know if we can use the word IPO. Yeah. Um, so, even even higher multiple now. So, they've got to really put up those gro- that growth to, to get me interested. But I, I do like the product quite mm-hmm. a bit. Well, on that growth side, it is, I mean, nearly double. Doubling sales every year. Well, and I think we all like using Slack, but it seems like it was maybe a year, a year and a half ago, we were talking about the private market valuation of Slack being somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to ten billion. Mm-hmm. Here we are. It's twenty-four, twenty-five billion dollars. It's hard not to look at this, even as a great business. As to your point, Ron, it's unprofitable. And they got some high expectations built in. High expectations. Six largest shareholders or institutions control 60% of the stock. It's going to be interesting to see what they do with their shares, and that's going to control the supply and demand, which will impact the stock price. Get the popcorn because Facebook's hoping to create a global currency. This ought to be fun. So stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. All right, before we get back to the headlines, let's talk about your business for a second. Because if you don't know your numbers, then you don't know your business. And the problem that growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is the patchwork quilt of business systems. You got one for accounting, another one for sales, another one for inventory. And let's face it, it's just an inefficient mess. It takes up too much time and too many resources, and that's what hurts your bottom line. And here's where NetSuite by Oracle comes in. It's the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. 
NetSuite gives you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unnecessary headaches by managing sales, finance, and accounting, orders, HR instantly right from your desktop or phone. That's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite's offering you valuable insights with a free guide. It's called Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. You can get it at netsuite.com slash fool. That's netsuite.com slash fool. Download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at netsuite.com slash fool. All right, let's get back to the news. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jeff Fisher, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. Two new radio stations joining The Motley Fool Money family this week, WBLT and WGMN in Southwest Virginia. BLT? Yeah. Yum. Sounds good. (laughs) Shares of Adobe hitting a new high this week after second quarter sales rose 25% compared to a year ago. Um, Jeff, I get that the end of 2018 was a little ugly for Adobe shareholders, but in general, this thing has just been a monster for five years or more. In the last three years alone, it has tripled. The stock has tripled, and yet it still looks pretty reasonable. As you mentioned, Chris, sales are growing 25% year-over-year. 25% earnings per share growth is expected in 2020, and the shares traded about 30, 31 times that estimate, so a bit of a premium to the growth rate, but merited given the strength of the business. They're really dominating in digital experiences, creating content online, promoting your content online. And uh, their Creative Cloud, which offers pretty much all of their um, products, or you can buy them piecemeal, really helps them uh, sell both to enterprises, so they have giant corporate customers and individuals as well. So their, their customer base is so diverse, and it really makes for a strong business. This week, Facebook unveiled Libra, a new digital currency set to launch in early 2020. Andy, this is not being run by Facebook directly. They're part of a group that's setting up a nonprofit association, although my assumption is at some point, Facebook is hoping to make money off of this. Yeah, well, there's the foundation, Chris. I think what the real purpose of this is just to continue to grow the Facebook reach across their 2.7 billion monthly active users. I mean, there are 500 billion non-cash transactions made globally each year. So, there's a lot of transactions made that Facebook doesn't really see. And I think they spend so much time trying to build the social connection through Facebook and WhatsApp and um, and Instagram that they now want to try to tie into the actual transactions connections part of, the, of our daily life. So, uh, it's a pretty exciting endeavor, but a lot of questions out there. How will it work? It'll be backed by some of the big currencies like the US dollar and the pound and the euro, but a lot of questions out about how it actually works and who actually uses it and how. Yeah, how and why. Yes, I mean, like, yeah, we, details. Come really, on, but yeah. like, you, if you think about just like the 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 way that we will be transacting through um, uh, currencies over the next you know ten years, clearly moving more into a digital space is going to be the way of the future, and Facebook wants to get a piece of that. Yep, yep. Darden Restaurants wrapped up its fiscal year. The parent company of Olive Garden, Longhorn Steakhouse, and other restaurant chains 
Darden's same-store sales in the fourth quarter rose just 1.5%. Ron, that is not lighting the world on fire. I think that's what the, what the investors are focusing on, because it was a solid report overall, driven by the addition of 39 net new restaurants, so sales were up 4.5%. But, as you say, 1.6% blended comp store sales. So, Olive Garden is, is getting it done, Longhorn's getting it done. Cheddar Scratch, not so much. Comp sales down 3.2% there. And they had a few other concepts with negative comps as well. So they, they know where they need to focus on for sure. But still, overall, 27% increase in EPS from continuing operations is strong. Darden uh, continues to execute really well. The stock's um, been very strong over the last five years, up 15% this year. They continue to purchase stock, uh, raise their dividend. So shareholders should still be pretty happy. You and I were talking about this before the show. Um, it's worth remembering that once upon a time, uh, Starboard Value activist investors came in and got a lot of attention, in part because one of their recommendations for Darden was, "Hey, stop giving away so many breadsticks at Olive Garden." <laughs> right. But you know, while they got attention for that, you can look at the point where Starboard Value got involved in this company. And draw a straight line to how it, well it has performed over the last few years. And stop salting the water so the pots <laughs> last longer. Yes, for sure. They've executed well. Restaurants are not my favorite investment. Specialty retailers are not my favorite investment. But you can't deny the success. Stocks even not that pricey right now at 18 times, where you see a lot of restaurants in the in the low 20, mid 20 range. So even now, it's, it could still be a good investment. Normally, we go to our man behind the glass, Steve Broido, who's well known for many things, including being arguably the biggest fan of Olive Garden on the Eastern Seaboard. <laughs> uh, Steve out this week, but our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is here. He's going to hit you with a question because it's time to get the stocks on our radar. And Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? I've got Carter's CRI. Leading manufacturer of children's clothing in the U.S. and Canada, stock got smacked in May after a strong first four months of the year. Traded down from a high of 108 to 84 on weak international sales, fear of tariffs. Uh, but it's rebounded nicely back to $95 a share. But I still think there's a nice entry point here. Dominant position in the children's apparel industry, strong financial performance across economic cycles, 2% dividend yield, only trading 14 times. Dan Boyd, question about Carter's? Ron, I keep hearing that millennials are having fewer and fewer babies in the generations that came before them. Uh, how does that look out for Carter's? Demographic shifts are important to, to the industry, for sure. they got to keep an eye on it and maybe start appealing to some, uh, some older folks as well. Jeff Fisher, what are you looking at this week? Well, I've only taken a fresh look at this idea in the last few days. So, with that caveat, Papa John's Pizza as a short. So, betting oh. against the stock potentially. The, the company is still really uh, struggling since the founder was ousted from it last year, and they lost the NFL uh, pr uh, promotional deal. As sales have uh, fallen 12% in the past year. Same store sales are down sharply. They're still trying to right the ship there. And the former founder is selling his shares in giant boatloads at the same time. But Chris, Starboard Value has stepped up. Hey now, so look out! They've invested 250 million in the struggling company. So, so it makes it for a very interesting. Will it will it do poorly or will it recover? Type of situation. Dan, question about Papa John's. Uh, not really, uh, Jeff. My favorite <laughs> pizza toppings are pineapple and jalapeno. Thoughts? I don't know that pineapple Together? should be on pizza. I, 
<laughs> yes, together. It's delicious. I've never tried that. I mean, I'll ha- Dan, I respect you, so I'll, I'll have to try it. Jeff, I know you're just taking a fresh look at Papa John's, but are you aware that Shaquille O'Neal, one of the more beloved professional athletes of the last 30 years in America, <laughs> is involved in this company? You're also betting against Shaq. I am aware. It's not personal, and I haven't made the bet yet, but it's... it's Potential. That's good that it's not personal because he's enormous <laughs> and you're not. <laughs> Andy Cross, what are you looking at this week? I guess with Starboard coming on board, maybe we're not going to see breadsticks at Papa John's. So um, <laughs> I'm looking at FactSet Research, uh, Chris. It's a company that provides global financial and economic like information, company research, data, portfolio analysis, trading solutions to lots of different financial firms, serves more than 5,400 global institutions. It's an $11.5 billion company, generates $1.4 billion in revenue. Very profitable. Um, stock has almost doubled over the past three years. Um, has returns on equity north of 50%. Operating margins are close to 30%. So client retention rates are exceptionally high, 95%. So I'm looking to see if their subscription revenue growth can continue to grow above 5% this quarter. And the ticker? FDS. Dan? So generally, it's Ron that brings in these very straight-laced, <laughs> sort of buttoned-up, boring stocks. Did he get to you or something before he, the show today? That's not a question. He did not, Chris, or did not, Dan. But what I'm I'm looking more and more at these, uh, you know, B to B business to business kind of providers, service providers. In fact, that's one of the best out there. You got a stock you want to add to your watch list, Dan? I love the Papa John's short because Papa John's pizza is vile. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Ryan Gross, Jeff Fisher, Andy Cross. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Up next, a conversation with Upwork CEO Stefan Kostriel. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. At our recent FoolFest investing conference, one of our featured guests was Stefan Kostriel, the CEO of Upwork. If you're not familiar with the company, Upwork is the largest site when it comes to freelancing. Motley Fool analyst Bill Mann interviewed Stefan Kostriel in front of a live audience, with their conversation covering a range of topics, including the future of work, the state of freelancing, and some of the weirder jobs that have been posted on Upwork. Bill kicked things off by asking Stefan what he wanted to be when he grew up. Oh, uh, it changed many times. I think I wanted to be a jet fighter pilot until I was uh, 11 or so. And then my parents bought me, and you you guys might remember what that was, an Atari 800. (laughs) (laughs) And I learned to code, because that's the only thing you could do when you turned on the machine, you had to code. And so I learned to code, and it was a life-changing moment. I didn't live in Silicon Valley, I grew up in Paris. Learning to code in Paris was not something that was cool or well-known, so I was probably one of the few kids. I sold my first computer program when I was 12, made 75 bucks, and I was like, I'm a millionaire, like, I'm, I am done here, like, this is amazing. And, uh, you know, I've, then I became a computer scientist. All right. So, why don't we start a little bit with Upwork. Sure. Uh, it's a $1.5 billion company. Uh, it's focused on matching freelancers with jobs. Yeah. What does this group of investors need to know about your company? Uh, well, I think the main thing is that it's a really big uh, market. We're solving a really, really big problem for uh, 
the US economy and for the world economy more generally, and that we are at the beginning of a very long journey. Um, as you said, we, we do about a billion and a half per year, meaning like that's the amount of money that freelancers on, on, on Upwork. It also happens to be our market cap for no particularly uh, correlated reason, I assume. Um, but freelancers in the US last year made $1.5 trillion, right? So we essentially have 0.1 market share in something that is re uh, growing much faster than the US economy. The, the number of freelancers in the US right now, it's about 35% of the US workforce, and is growing three times faster than the traditional you know, full-time W2 uh, population and so we are at the very beginning of a very long journey where we're helping transform what people refer to as the future of work. I hope it's also the present of work because <laughs> I have to sell it today. I can't just wait for it to uh, materialize but the reality of it is uh, there's a really big shift happening in society and in the economy and it's happening in the US but it's also happening across the world. We see it happening in India, we see it happening in Latin America, we definitely see it happening in Europe as well. So it's a newly public company, came public in October yeah. 2018, is that correct? Yep, yeah, so, after 20 years, you know, yeah. but it's, overnight success that took that's 20 right. years. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, it's been in business for about, you've been in business in, in business since yeah. 1999, so maybe talk a little bit about what that development path has looked like. Sure. Um, so I am not the founder of the company. I was not there in 1999. I joined in 2012. Uh, but fundamentally, it's a company where the founders had an absolutely brilliant vision, but they were way too early compared to the market. So if you, if you come back in 1999, the idea that you could work online, work from home, work remotely, meant you were doing this with expensive long-distance calling and fax machines. Not exactly great to be, build a relationship with your customers. Mm -hmm. um, the business started to take off when broadband became a big thing. You know, around 2008, broadband became ubiquitous. People started to build video conferencing hardware, uh, the first Logitech webcams, and then, and then software that went with it. Skype, you know, essentially took off at that time. And that also became the time when tools that people use moved to the cloud. Things became digital in general. Mm. Things moved to the cloud. And so suddenly, you could work from anywhere. And that's really been the beginning of the journey. So, you know, first 10 years were great vision, but smart enough not to burn too much cash because the market was not ready for us and then the last 10 years has really been about exponential growth so I made a search on Upwork uh, yesterday um, you know just in case this whole fool thing doesn't work out uh, <laughs> so there were tw 12,000 jobs that were being offered uh, one was help me manage my Instagram feed uh, one was I'm developing a plastic injection mold prototype and one was uh, requiring an incredible depth of programming knowledge um, your corporate description points to 5,000 skills in about 70 categories. What are some of the areas where you're having the most success? Yeah, um, I would say generally uh, all things grow. And part of the reason why they grow is because companies that need X typically need Y. And so when a new customer, and I should mention that, by the way, the Monthly Four is a great client and has been a great <laughs> customer for many, many years. And we are deeply thankful for the mm -hmm. partnership. Uh, but you know, like you would be an example. Like you started in one category, and then you started using us in many, many different ways. And so, generally, all the categories tend to follow a similar path. That being said, you know, we do a billion dollars worth of software development every year, uh, and the law of gravity does kick in at some point. You know, like there's only so many mobile apps and websites people want to build. Uh, whereas in the smaller categories, you know, emerging trends in AI or or things that are really, really uh, nascent for us, like you know, legal services or strategic consulting or what have you, where they start from a base of you know, $50 million a year, let's say, uh, grow much faster. 
What's the weirdest job you've seen advertised? Oh, there's so many weird jobs. It's, uh, you know, like, <laughs> no, but it's amazing how, um, you know, probably one of the most interesting things about building a, a um, you know, a, a middleware, like a tool that people can use, is that they find ways to use it that are totally different from what we designed for them to do. Um, well, I would give you one example just because this is an investor community. One that I found surprising, but apparently it's very well known, is uh, as part of taking the company public, we started talking to a lot of investors. We've been uh, cash flow positive for many years, so we haven't had to spend time with the investor community mm -hmm. up to you know, preparing for the IPO. And, and as a result, I expected nobody to know us because we're not a consumer brand and we haven't raised money, so how, how would anybody know us? And during the IPO process, every single person we talked to was a customer. And that was shocking to me. So after a while, you start to ask questions, you know, like, what do you guys use us for? And uh, it turns out that, you know, you can build all sorts of technologies on Upwork to get an edge to try to understand, you know, like, some of them are, Amazing, you know, we, we power some of the predictive models, some of the AI for some of the best quant hedge funds in the world where they find amazing talent, you know, people that have three PhDs in neurolinguistics and live in Romania and nobody else knows about them. They find them and they build like a, you know, a quant <laughs> model that, you know, outbids everybody else in the industry. Some of it is less glamorous, but probably very effective, where they take you know, satellite imagery and they count the number of cars in the parking lot of Walmart, or they look at the, the shadow that is projected by the shopping bags of people, and from there they infer how big the bag is, and from there how big the shopping cart was, and therefore whether Walmart is going to make their numbers or not. Um, but, you know, wait, like, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, no, they do that. There's actually a, Okay, so let me give you one. There's a, there's we a, are terrible at our jobs. I don't no, know anything like no, that. That's when you realize like, you know, the wisdom of the crowd, right? when you've got like a billion people that want to invest in the stock market, everybody tries everything. There's a company that yeah. um, looks at satellite imagery, looks for uh, oil tankers that are carrying oil, look at the size of the, sh the shadow of the tanker, and from there predicts how heavy how the heavy tanker is, is, and therefore how much oil. So not only do they know where it's going, where it's coming from, but also how much oil is in there. And from there, they can build models to, that say, you know, this is what the oil price is going to look like, right? And so there's stuff like this, which is not at all what we intended for the product to be used, but clearly it's being used to, you know, make people, what's your expression, smarter, happier, I don't know about happier, but smarter and richer <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I'm not sure how happy tracking uh, <laughs> oil, oil, oil tanker yeah. girth is, but yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that you've said that I thought was so interesting is that uh, you know, in the gig economy, that uh, skills and not pedigree are what's going to matter for for the future workforce. Um, what does that mean for the future of education? I mean, there's a famous Broadway show called Avenue Q, and they have a song called "What Do I Do with a BA in English?" Yeah. So. What do you do with a BA in English in a gig economy? Sure. Uh, you know, first of all, I would say if you can afford to put your kids to college, especially a really good college, it's still very much valued by the industry, right? I mean, there's still tons of companies that will say if you've got a PhD from Stanford or a BS from Yale or whatever you have, you will get a better job and you'll get paid more, right? So I'm not claiming like you shouldn't put your kids to college. However, the reality is most children will not go to college, and that's true in the US and it's true in the world, and in particular, children whose parents didn't go to college and can't afford to go to college most likely will not go to college. <laughs> and if you look at the economy today, the real wages of that population has been going down over the last 50 years, and it seems like there's no end to this. And 
at the same time, you hear companies saying there's a huge shortage of skills, we can't hire good enough talent, and we also care deeply about diversity, we really struggle to find underrepresented minorities, all of that stuff, and you realize, well, the, the solution is in the problem statement itself, right? If you keep putting in your job description, I need somebody who came to, you know, got a bachelor degree from uh, an Ivy League university, and then you're wondering why you don't get underrepresented minorities, well, <laughs> here's the answer, right? And so, fundamentally, you know, a bachelor from Yale is a proxy for something else. You don't really care that they did a bachelor from Yale. You care that they learn how to learn, you care that they are very competitive, you care that they are very analytical, I mean, whatever it is that you care about. And so we encourage companies to break down what they really mean by, you know, that bullet point, which looks innocuous but is incredibly discriminatory in your job description, we've removed it. Like we don't no. put college degree required in our job descriptions. Uh, an increasing number of companies are doing it, and we find that it really helps us bring a lot of diversity, and not just for the sake of diversity. I mean, obviously we care deeply about diversity, belonging, and inclusion in our company, but it actually makes the company better. You bring people that have a totally different background, who, by the way, might look more like your customers. You know, like if you have a bunch of uh, not to be pejorative, but you know, young white dudes who went to Stanford and you're serving a much more diverse community of customers, well maybe your, your uh, employees are not relating properly to the potential That's customers. Fair. So there's all sorts of good reasons and I think it is gonna be a better world, a world where people don't stop learning when they're 25, but they are learning throughout their lives and they're mm -hmm. learning in bite-sized chunks. And so this approach of convincing employers to think a lot more about skills and convincing people to think a lot more about where they want to take their skills, what is the next set of skills they want to acquire, and you know, invest in their reskilling. Either the companies need to help them invest or people should set money aside to do it. In some countries, uh, you know, Singapore most notably is giving people $500 a year uh, that they can only use in personal training, mm. right? And as a result, the Singapore economy is extremely competitive from a talent standpoint because people always have the best possible skills. So you're having said that I promise you that I promise everyone that we didn't plan ahead of time because here my next question is uh, lots of businesses use degrees, school elite, eliteness, and other educational achievements as proxies of competency. Yeah. Um, what are some of the things that freelancers must do to stand out, or is that something that the platform itself is helping them manage? Yeah, so I think you know, what, what we do, like our role in helping freelancers is essentially two things. One is giving them access to jobs that they would never hear about otherwise. You know, typically, in real you know, offline freelancing world, people hear about jobs through their personal networks, mm -hmm. and their personal networks tend to be deeply local. So if you happen to live in San Francisco or New York, uh, you get access to the cold gigs. If you live you know, 250 miles away in the center of the country, you have no idea what's going on. Right? So that giving people access to- That a little bit to, to the diversity issue yeah, that I mean, you're talking about. Look, the, the main issue we have you know, in this economy today right, is we destroy jobs in the center of the country, and we create jobs in a smaller and smaller number of cities, the, the superstar cities of the US, where the cost of living is rising even faster than the wages. Mm -hmm. And if you're a young person today, there's very much a catch-22, which is you either stay in your small college town, and then it's gonna be really hard for you to get access to really good jobs, or you move to the big, uh, the big cities, and now in addition to having unbearable student debt, you have an unbearable mortgage on top of that, right? Mm -hmm. And that is not, 
a good you know, place for us to go to, and it doesn't have to be that way, right? And so the number one thing that I tell employers is the way you do college recruiting today is fundamentally broken. Like the worst thing you can do is take a kid who's graduating from the State University of Fresno, top 25 uh, research university in the US, which is 200 miles away from San Francisco. Like the worst thing you can do is hire them and relocate them from San to San Francisco because you've made the San Francisco housing crisis and income inequality even higher, and meanwhile, you've depleted the city of Fresno from a highly talented person who was going to pay taxes locally and create jobs locally. And she could do that job just fine she can do, Fresno. Yeah, yeah. You know, frankly, like, the, the, the committing issue tends to be the same in every city. And you know, where I come from in Paris right now, there's all these you know, strikes going <laughs> on. And, and the, the issue is the people whose jobs really need to be done in the town tend to be people that can't afford to live in the town. Yeah. And meanwhile, the people that live in the town have jobs that can be done from anywhere. Right? So the way we're building our cities right now is completely broken. But the good news is the solution is pretty clear, which is allow people that have knowledge jobs that can be done from anywhere to relocate to another part of the country where they're going to have a higher quality of life, they'll be closer to their community. And so we do the opposite of college recruiting. We do what we call delocation packages. We have our people that are in San Francisco and, and the Bay Area, and we tell them, usually when they start to have multiple kids, they start to say, look, it's unbearable. I can't raise my kids here. It's not even healthy for my kids to, to live in this environment. We pay them to actually move to another part of the country, and they choose where they want to live. But don't they tend to move to Austin? No, so typically, like, well, yeah, so, no, actually, that does happen. So I, I would say we are <laughs> guilty, guilty as charged, and I would say, Austin at this stage doesn't seem to be too resentful about it. The place that is resentful is Portland, because yeah. we definitely have seen a lot of people that say, hey, I'm moving out of San Francisco, I'm going to Portland, and the Portland locals are saying, we, the last thing we want is for our town to undergo the same thing that has happened to San Francisco in the last 20 years, right? I mean, the, the best way for this to happen is to have a very decentralized and dispersed approach to it. Like, if we're just porting the same problem, like we created Silicon Valley, uh, the Silicon Valley situation, then we created the Seattle situation, which is almost as bad. Mm -hmm. Last thing we want is to create the Portland situation thereafter, right? I mean, like, we, we need a place where cities invest in building livable places where people actually want to go, and in particular, young, educated people that tend to bring a lot of uh, you know, consumption and, and, uh, and uh, economic development with them. Uh, we need more towns in the U.S. that are successful. Coming up, Stefan shares Upwork's biggest untapped opportunity, he also shares some great advice for the graduating class of 2019. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. All right, before we wrap up the interview, I want to say thanks to Sprout Social. What makes people love the brands they love? Connection. And social media is where they look for that connection. Sprout Social gives businesses a unified solution to find, engage with, and nurture their audiences through social. In one intuitive platform, you can see and respond to every message, join the conversations happening around your brand, and turn rich social data into actionable insights. More than 25,000 organizations around the globe use Sprout to create real connection. So, no matter the size of your organization or the scale of your social efforts, Sprout's got you covered when you need to deliver and measure valuable content, learn deeper insights about your audience, and nurture relationships with your customers. To learn how your brand can create real connection, go to SproutSocial.com fool today. That's SproutSocial.com fool. 
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Let's get back to Bill Mann's conversation with Upwork CEO Stefan Kosriel. What do you think are your company's largest opportunities going forward, where you no, are currently not participating? Well, I would say, uh, the, the, you know, the, the probably the biggest one in the long run for us, uh, and we are participating in it, but. Uh, completely under-index is working with very large employers. Mm. Uh, traditionally, our business was um, you know, early-stage tech companies in New York and San Francisco that were struggling to find talent locally, and so we'd find people in the Midwest or people in Chile or somewhere else in the world. Um, but, but reality is um, you know, uh, more than half of GDP and more than half of employment in the US comes from larger companies who traditionally have been really reluctant to the idea of having people work remotely. You know, famously, IBM fired all of their remote workers, and Yahoo mm-hmm. brought everybody back in-house, and all mm-hmm. of that stuff. And um, unfortunately, uh, they are also the slowest to change. But it is a huge opportunity. We now work with uh, 30% of the Fortune 500. Some of them will spend well over $10 million this year on the platform. It's still small compared to what it needs to be, mm-hmm. uh, but it is already 20% of our business. And I think if you ask me 10 years down the road, m- the vast majority of our business will be in the enterprise sector. So you saw, actually, with our last speaker, what the last question is. And, ah, yeah. uh, so Can we do this without the music? <laughs> <laughs> No. I can't imagine like doing Heck it with the music. No. It's going to be right, even harder. So let's set the stage in your mind, though. Let's let's say you're giving the commencement yeah. speech at a mildly prestigious university. Let's call it, you know, Duke. Um, <laughs> and uh, 45 seconds. These people have already made four years of a mistake. But what do you what have you got for them? Yeah. <laughs> You know, like, I, see, here's what I would say. They are. Uh, oh, we're doing the music. <laughs> I would say most careers are linear, and the good ones are exponential. And the way you start an exponential is by not doing what everybody else is doing. And so I would say three things that people should be doing. One is take more risks at the beginning. And I know it's hard because you have student debt, and I know you think it's the worst possible time to do it. It's actually the best possible time to do it because your opportunity cost will only go up, and the amount of money that you owe to take care of your family will only go up. So. Take a big risk, don't go do an entry-level job at a big company like everybody else. Second thing is uh, learn exponentially. You know, what I said earlier, if you, do, if you get 1% smarter every day, you'll be 35 times smarter at the end of the year. The time when you can make the biggest difference is early in your career. It's compound interest, just like investing. Invest in your skills, they will pay off over time in a big way. And I think the third one is do something that matters. You know, the world doesn't need another burger, burger flipping automation robot or another photo sharing app. There's tons of issues in the world. There's tons of people that are struggling. So do something that is actually helping, you know, create a better world. And if you don't know where to go, I'd say the UN, the United Nations has something called the Sustainable Development Goals. And they're around gender parity, they're around poverty, they're around food security, they're around climate change. Go, you know, send a spaceship to the moon, do something big, do something that really matters, because, you know, life is short and you gotta get started now. Stefan Casriel, that was amazing. Stefan Casriel, CEO of Upwork, thank you. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.